0: He stated his concerns of voter fraud and, and people voting illegally during the campaign. And he continues to maintain that belief.
1: Because of course he does. Facts? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Alt facts I got right. Alternative facts. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs to the left me, to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you i am yes i'm stuck in from pacifica radio you. in los angeles this is the broadcast as heard on kpfk 90.7 fm in la up in oregon on 91.7 fm kyaq on the central coast at 106.7 fm queso in cottage grove In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. We're also heard coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, still from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. And my thanks to Angie Coyro for filling in for us on yesterday's thrilling broadcast. Much appreciated. Uh, Boy, oh boy, we got another one of those days today. I suspect this is going to continue for a while, Desi Doyen, uh, trying to uh, trying to catch up.
2: The hits just keep on coming.
1: Yeah, they do. Trying to catch up with everything that's going on, changing by the minute. Uh, But the important thing here, the important thing that I've noticed over the well on on Inauguration Day and in the days since Trump's inauguration, watch what he does. Don't be distracted by what he says. That's what the mainstream media, the corporate media, they're gonna follow. They're gonna take every piece of bait that he offers, but watch what he does. Don't get distracted by what he says. So everybody was, you know, i, I I'm sure you're well familiar now with his nonsense about the the crowd sizes at the inauguration over the. Uh, Not just on Friday, but over the weekend and still today. He's still talking about that. He's still obsessed with his crowd size, although I don't think it's the size of his crowd that he's obsessed with. But um, don't pay attention to that. Pay attention uh, to what he is actually doing. So, for example... The uh, the National Park Service had actually tweeted out. Now the National Mall, where he was uh, Trump was inaugurated on Friday, is actually part of the National Park Service, and they retweeted a tweet that compared. The, uh, you've seen the photos by now. We have it up at bradblog.com that compared the crowd sizes on the National Mall, which is part of the National Park Service, between Obama's uh, inauguration in 2009 and Trump's in 2017, and of course. That caused all kinds of problems. Those pictures that led to what, you know, Trump's obsession ever since on the size of his crowd. But more importantly than that and what he is saying about it is the fact that shortly thereafter, shortly after the National Park Service had tweeted these two photos, the Trump administration ordered the National Park Service to knock it off, to stop tweeting entirely. And not just about the inauguration and the size of Donald Trump's crowd, but they ordered them to stop tweeting at all, period, everything. And it wasn't just the uh, National Park Service, by the way, but the entire Department of Interior was ordered to stop using Twitter that day on on Friday. The uh, the National Park Service had to later remove tweets uh, and and one uh, National Park Service account noted that it would cease tweeting the uh, Mount Rainier. NPS account said until further notice all park road condition updates will will be provided on the Mount Rainier Facebook page not on Twitter anymore so it wasn't just a matter of uh, you know, removing tweets that the administration found objectionable about the size of his crowd. They were actually ordering that tweets and services that are used by the American people for road closures and so forth, icy conditions and information that is put out by these various National Park Service accounts, those had to stop as well because Donald Trump was upset that they showed how big uh, his crowd size actually was. Here's the uh, here's the email that was uh, Gizmodo got it all. This was sent from someone somehow somewhere in the uh, Trump administration. To the, uh, to the National Park Service employees, all we have received direction from the department through the Washington Support Office that directs all Department of Interior bureaus to immediately cease use of government Twitter accounts until further notice. Parks that use Twitter as part of their crisis communications plans. ...need to alter their contingency plans to accommodate this requirement. Please ensure all scheduled posts are deleted and automated cross-platform social media connections to your Twitter accounts are severed. The expectation is that there will be absolutely no posts to Twitter. This Twitter stand-down means we will cease use of Twitter immediately... However, there is no need to suspend or delete government accounts until directed. This does not affect other approved social media platforms like Facebook, etc., which I guess Donald Trump doesn't use. He uses Twitter. He noticed when this happened on Twitter and the response was, oh, don't tweet about this or that. It was shut it all down. Just shut it all down. And uh, they uh, ended up deleting a couple of those uh, those tweets that uh, apparently someone found objectionable. They were the National Park Service main Twitter account put out a notice saying uh, on Saturday saying we regret the mistaken retweets from our account yesterday and look forward to continuing to share the beauty and history of our parks with you. And uh, and then uh, about 24 hours or so later, I believe they were allowed to uh, they were allowed to start tweeting again. But we're talking about shutting down, shutting down communications of the federal government because Donald Trump was sad or embarrassed. Uh, Furthermore, it didn't end. Though the National Park Service tweets came back online and the various national parks were allowed to start tweeting again, they have now been forced to delete several tweets that were sent today concerning climate science. Badlands National Park tweeted out that burning one gallon of gasoline puts nearly 20 pounds of carbon dioxide into our atmosphere. Another tweet they put out flip side of the atmosphere. Ocean acidity has increased 30 percent since the Industrial Revolution. And one more. Today, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher than at any time in the last 650,000 years. All of those are fact-based tweets. They are not particularly controversial. They wouldn't have been controversial uh, at any other time, uh, I suspect, in our nation's history because it's just straight facts. But all of those Badlands National Parks uh, tweets were taken down. They had to be taken down. They were retweeted by uh, thousands of people before they were deleted, but they were taken down. Watch what he is doing. Not what he's talking about, but what he is actually doing as well. Uh, Trump's team apparently banned the EPA from the entire Environmental Protection Agency now from sending social media updates or talking to reporters, according to the Associated Press. And Desi Doyen, there was news of a uh, the Department of Agriculture. The USDA also had a gag order on it, but that is uh, not the case yet as right. far as we know?
2: Right. Uh, on Tuesday there was an internal email that was sent out to the staff of the Agriculture mm-hmm. Research Service and that is the one that provides uh, really deep data and scientific studies that are used by farmers, by agribusiness to understand what's going on of course with the different nature of, of, of everything that the Department of Agriculture studies. Um, so originally there was an email that was sent out that said starting immediately and until further notice the Agriculture Research Research Service will not release any public-facing document. documents. That means anything that the public might see. Um, and this includes but is not limited to news releases, photos, fact sheets, news feeds and social media content that has since been pulled back. Apparently, uh, there was enough of a public outcry, perhaps from uh, agribusiness that triggered the Department of Agriculture to then pull back and say, oh, that was not approved. That has not been determined yet. But
1: this is going on and people freaked out on uh, on Friday when it looked like the White House had removed pages about climate science and civil rights and LGBT uh, people and so forth. And in fact, they had removed those sections. But in fact, it's not that unusual. It's not unusual when a new administration comes into the White House uh, to basically start with a clean slate. And in fact, all of the Obama administration White House pages are said to have been saved by the National Archives at ObamaWhiteHouse.Archives.gov. I suppose we uh, it, it's, of course, troubling that they they don't seem to give much of a damn about climate change, or at least they don't want to talk about it at the uh, at the new White House website. But those pages are still there. So the White House is apparently well preserved, even the uh, the, the previous uh, administrations. However, Uh, As uh, law professor Douglas Cox pointed out to PolitiFact, he's an expert in information policy at the City University of New York, while the WhiteHouse.gov information is well-preserved from administration to administration, federal records produced by the agencies other than the White House in prior administrations, those may get lost. And that's very real. That's a real concern. Uh, So, again, don't be distracted. Now, what did the uh, the White House did say uh, when they put up something not about climate change, uh, about uh, but about energy? America, what do they call it? America First Energy Plan. And they talked about being committed to energy policies that lower the cost for hardworking Americans, maximize the use of American resources, freeing us from dependence on foreign oil. Sounds like a whole bunch of stuff that Obama already did. Nonetheless, Uh, they, They write, for too long we've been held back by burdensome regulations on our energy industry. President Trump is committed to eliminating harmful and unnecessary policies such as the Climate Action Plan and the Waters of the U.S. rule. They promise to embrace the shale oil and gas revolution. Which, by the way, during the Obama administration, went absolutely through the roof.
2: Yeah, most people aren't aware that the U.S. is now one of the largest, if not the largest, Mm -hmm. exporter of oil in the world. Just in the last eight years. Right,
1: I was going to say, thanks Obama, that was all from uh, the, the last eight years. The uh, Trump website, White House website, goes on to say that the administration is committed to clean coal technology and to reviving America's coal industry, which has been hurting for too long. Well, good luck doing that at the same time that uh, you are embracing the shale and gas revolution.
2: Because natural gas is coal's primary competitor in the marketplace.
1: Yep. And then lastly, they say, and again, watch what they say versus what they do on this uh, America First Energy Plan page. Our need for energy must go hand in hand with responsible stewardship of the environment, protecting clean air and clean water, conserving our natural habitats and preserving our natural reserves and resources will remain a high priority. President Trump will refocus the EPA on its essential mission of protecting our air and water.
2: Except for that whole regulations that they're getting rid of. That protect air and water and public health.
1: And before they even get rid of them, the uh, Trump administration has now frozen all EPA uh, grants and contracts... They have instructed the officials at the EPA to freeze these uh, entirely. This move could affect everything from state-led climate research to local efforts to improve air and water quality—the things that Trump pretends that he cares about. Oh, on his cities! Page.
2: Yeah, cities like Flint, Michigan. They would require a grant. They would get help from the EPA via a grant. To be able to pay to replace their system, their e- water system.
1: An email went out to employees in the agency's Office of Acquisition Management within hours of Trump swearing in on Friday. Again, pay attention to what he's doing, not to what he's saying. That email said "New EPA admin- the new EPA administration has asked that all contract and grant awards be temporarily suspended, effective immediately. Now, you may have heard there was also a a hiring freeze across the entire federal budget uh, except for national security, military and what they describe as public safety. But the total halt in contracts and grants in a single agency appears to go beyond that specific provision, and it appears to be largely unprecedented. Other presidents in the past have come in and done a hiring freeze for a short time. Uh, But to single out a specific agency like this, like they have singled out the EPA, uh, has not been done, at least in recent history, according to uh, to uh, one EPA employee told ProPublica he did not recall anything like this ever happening. So that's going on. That's what he's actually doing. Uh, That's what he's actually doing, even while uh, his nominee to run the EPA, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, has also repeatedly sued the EPA over the years, challenging his legal authority to regulate pretty much anything from mercury pollution to various wetlands and waterways to carbon emissions from power plants. But if you just listen to Donald Trump, well, you would have heard what a champion of the environment he is. Donald Trump says he's an environmentalist. This was 9.45 a.m. this morning from AP. The president made comments on Tuesday at a breakfast with auto industry executives. He didn't elaborate on why he sees himself as an environmentalist, but he said he was.
2: Well, he said so.
1: And on Monday, he made similar comments at a breakfast, uh, a business breakfast, stating again, without elaborating, quote, I'm a very big person when it comes to the environment. I have received awards on the environment. So that was uh, today, this morning, and about, uh, I believe, less than one hour later, Donald Trump, according to AP, signed executive actions to advance the construction of the Keystone XL and Dakota Access oil pipelines. Former President Barack Obama killed the proposal for the Keystone XL pipeline in 2015. He said it would hurt American efforts to reach a global climate change deal. And that the pipeline w- 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 that was set to run from Canada to U.S. refineries in the Gulf Coast would now move forward, according to Donald Trump and his executive actions. Now, mind you, they're talking about, uh, you know, America's uh, U- the U.S. O- oil resources making use of that. Well, these aren't U.S. oil resources. These are Canada oil resources, and these will be shipped across the entire country to be sent overseas. That's the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, the uh, Dakota Access pipeline. Uh, the U.S. Army had decided last year to look at alternate alternative routes for the for that pipeline. After the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and its supporters pointed out that the pipeline threatened drinking water and Native American cultural sites, that pipeline would carry North Dakota oil through South Dakota and Iowa all the way down to Illinois for refiner er, for refining. It remains unclear, The Washington Post says, how Trump's order would exactly restart the pipeline projects or expedite environmental reviews of them. Many of those reviews are statutory and the legislation that created them cannot simply be swept aside by an executive order. The White House did not immediately release the text of the order, so it is unclear. But it is clear that people are going to continue to fight these just because uh, Trump has signed an executive order does not mean they're going to happen. People are going to continue to fight against these two huge, dirty oil pipelines that will threaten uh, clean drinking water, air, sacred Native American sites in dozens of states, not to mention the global climate for the entire planet, as scientists have argued that uh, if the dirty oil sand, oil uh, sands in uh, in Canada, for example, are fully exploited, via the Keystone XL pipeline, that it would be, quote, game over for the planet. I think that was James Hansen, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Formerly head of NASA science. Um, So the fight to to, to block both pipelines will continue. But that may well be uh, close to lost in both cases. That fight may be over. And folks who voted in a way that helped Donald Trump win, Particularly in states that were close, or in in dozens of uh, of states that will be directly affected and endangered by these massive new pipelines, they need to be reminded that yes, elections have consequences. Elections have consequences. I know there's a lot of people out there who opposed these uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Keystone XL Pipeline. They they oppose them, but. They voted either for Donald Trump or in another way that may have helped Donald Trump win against Hillary Clinton in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Florida and North Carolina. You know, so, I, you know, I, I don't blame voters for voting any way they like. We support voters voting any way they like. But what we do support is voters who are educated. We support an, an educated electorate. So if you voted uh, in a way that made it easier for Donald Trump to win and yet you oppose these pipelines, well, uh, congratulations. I'm not sure what to say there. I point these out because people need to know. Again, not blaming the voters, but as I was trying to point out in the run up to the election, election uh, voting has consequences. Know what the consequences are of your vote. This now is certainly one of those consequences. You know, we talk a lot about accountability on this program, particularly as it applies to public officials and public policies, but voters also have accountability in what happens in this country and in this world. So, with that said, uh, voting. (laughs) Yes, uh, Trump is still talking about the size of his inauguration crowd. Uh, As of Monday, during a meeting with congressional leaders, uh, Congressman Steny Hoyer, Democrat of Maryland, uh, who attended the meeting on Monday, told CNN that uh, Trump... Also talked about the size of the crowd for his inauguration speech, saying it was a huge crowd, a magnificent crowd. I haven't seen such a crowd as big as this. But he also talked about something else. We're going to take a quick break uh, and come back and talk about that, because at the White House on Monday and again today at the White House, uh, Trump is lying, blatantly lying still about this notion that 3 to 5 million illegal ballots were cast and cost him the popular vote. We're going to talk about that and more when we get back. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that desi doyan and i do every day this country ain't gonna save itself but we can all do it together that's bradblog.com donate and thank you Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, days after being sworn in, President Trump insisted to congressional leaders invited to a reception at the White House on Monday that he would have won the popular vote had it not been for millions, millions of illegal votes. This is according to people familiar with the meeting, and uh, Trump has uh, the Trump White House has uh, stood by this ever since. Trump has, of course, repeatedly claimed without evidence, as Washington Post notes, that widespread voter fraud caused him to lose the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, even while he clinched the presidency with an Electoral College victory. Washington Post says uh, two people familiar with the meeting said Trump spent about 10 minutes at the top of the gathering with Republicans and Democratic lawmakers rehashing the campaign. He told them that between three million and five million illegal votes caused him to lose the popular vote. His claim that he would have won the popular vote uh, was then confirmed by a third person at the meeting. Despite the fact that the claim is, as Washington Post notes, not supported by any verifiable facts and analyses of the election, found virtually no confirmed cases of voter fraud, let alone millions. Clinton won by 2.8 million votes in The New York Times. And congrats to The New York Times for the way they headlined this piece. Trump repeats lie about popular vote in meeting with lawmakers. New York Times, in a headline.
2: They used the L word.
1: They used the L word. Trump repeats lie about popular vote in meeting with lawmakers. Good for New York Times. As part of the uh, conversation, uh, they note uh, Trump made the assertion about illegal immigrants voting in huge numbers for Mrs. Clinton. That's similar, of course, to a Twitter message that he posted in late November that he said when he, when he said he would have won the popular vote, quote, if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Voting officials across the country, they note, have said there is virtually no evidence of people voting illegally and certainly not millions of them. Of course, if even one million voters had voted illegally, that would be huge. That would be huge scandal. A million illegal votes in the country. And you would think if that was true, that the Trump White House would want to expose it. They would, would want to start making hundreds of thousands of arrests. But of course, they're not actually interested in any such thing. And we know this because they spent all of this time and money successfully blocking the attempted recounts in three states after the election. So that proves it. they're not interested in exposing any kind of fraud. Despite the fact that, by the way, it was so close in just those three states, in just those three states had just three votes in each precinct been recorded for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. She, not he, would have been the president now. So in a race that close with three to five million illegal votes, according to Donald Trump, you would think that the president of the United States would insist on an investigation. And would want to use that opportunity that he had when they were trying to count the votes, when they were trying to reconcile the poll books in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania to, to ferret out this fraud. But no, instead of that. They spent millions of dollars trying to shut down the counts entirely, and they were successful at that. Uh, Sean Spicer, the uh, new White House communications director press what is press, t- secretary. press secretary uh, was asked about these comments. These three to five million, three to five million illegal votes that uh, cost Donald Trump the popular vote. He was uh, Sean Spicer was asked about that today at uh, at the White House press briefing.
0: Does the president believe that millions voted illegally in this election? And what evidence do you have of widespread voter fraud in this election, if that's the case? The president does believe that he has stated that before. I think he stated his concerns, uh, voter fraud, and, and people voting illegally during the campaign, and he continues to maintain that belief based on studies and evidence that people have presented to him.
2: But exactly what, what evidence? I, well, I, Speaker I, Ryan today said there's no evidence. The National Association of Secretaries of State say that they don't agree with the president's assessment. What evidence do you have?
0: As I said, I think the President has believed that for a while based on studies and information he has.
2: When you were talking about that voter fraud, are you going to ask for an investigation? Is the White House going to formally ask for a probe into this alleged voter fraud? I think he won very,
0: very handily with 306 electoral votes. 33 states. He's very comfortable with his win, it but I think...
2: to trouble him if he's bringing it up. That's I think he was having him. a discussion
0: with some folks and, and mentioned something in passing, which has been a long-standing belief that he's maintained. This isn't the first time that you've heard this concern of his. Try. It's not, but I Thanks, think it's Sean. worth
2: clarifying whether illegal ballots or illegal immigrants... And I, I think there's been studies, there was one government.
0: that yeah. came out of Pew in 2008 that showed 14%... Of, of people who have voted no. were non citizens. There's other studies that have no. been presented to him. It's a belief he maintains. I don't, I mean, just
2: that they were <laughs> counted improperly as Dick Durbin says the president personally told him last night. It was that the people who voted. I think I, I have so asked
0: and answered it. It's a belief that he's maintained for a while, a concern that he has about voter fraud, uh, and, and that's based on information that's provided. Yeah, so. Just
3: to follow up on Cecilia, yeah. if If three to five million people voted illegally, that is a scandal of astronomical proportions. Doesn't he want to restore Americans' faith in their ballot system? Wouldn't he want an investigation of this? Well, I I I get
0: it. This a is a but Mar, You, as I've noted several times now he's believed this for a long time I'm and I think he won fairly overwhelmingly I, so he's I, not uh, And look we'll work I'm
3: asking you why not investigate something well, that well, is, could, a, is a, the will. biggest scandal mm-hmm. in American electoral history 3 to 5 million people voting illegally I and I
0: think we I will see where we go from here but right now the focus that the president has is on putting Americans back to work it was a comment that he made on a
1: long standing belief So he believes it so he's just going to keep saying it. No reason to back it up. Maybe, though, who knows? Maybe there'll be an investigation. It would be, uh, I think that was Mara Liasson of, of NPR. Yes, the final uh,
2: question was Mara Liason.
1: NPR and of Fox News, I should point out. Yes. Uh, saying that three to five million uh, illegal votes would be a scandal of epic proportions, and yet they're not interested in doing anything about it. Or are they? As I say, uh, keep an eye on what they do, not what they say. They're happy to keep uh, you know, repeating these lies over and over again, but don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Watch what they do and watch what they did on Inauguration Day regarding voting rights. That should give us all a very clear picture of what they intend to do when it comes to voter suppression and when when it comes to pretend voting voter fraud. We'll talk about that next with my guest Julie Ebenstein right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So, yes, watch what Trump does, not what Trump says. He and his transition team had been saying in the lead up to last Friday's inauguration that they wouldn't be doing any actual business until Monday. Uh, That Friday would be inauguration festivities and that it was the weekend after that. And we all know the presidents are are the president only on weekdays. Uh, So it would be Monday before they did any actual business, they said. Well, by and large, that was the case, at least publicly. But privately, watch what they were doing privately. Uh, At least not, you know, making a a big public uh, stink about it at all, not even announcing it. Privately, they sprung into action and their first order of business was taking action to begin reversing the U.S. Department of Justice's uh, position against Voter suppression in one of the long challenged uh, cases uh, in the state of Texas and and the state's uh, attempts to impose draconian photo ID voting restrictions that court after court has found now for years that that law could keep uh, as many as a million legal Texas voters from being able to cast a vote at all. Now, I know I drive folks crazy with my coverage of this issue. And because we do it all year round, not just in the days before an election when it's largely too late to do much about issues of voter suppression and election integrity, etc. Democrats and progressives may not like talking about this issue other times of the year, uh, but Republicans know how important this issue is. And they work on it. They work on it all the time, which is why it was the virtually the only thing that they actually did on Friday. The only thing that they actually took action on during Trump's first day in office last week. As uh, Rick Hassan, the uh, UC Irvine election law professor, noticed, uh, his headline: "It begins. DOJ asks for extra time in Texas voter ID case because of likely change of positions." In case the DOJ, he wrote, uh, uh, filed this request for a one month extension of a hearing in the trial court hearing the latest round in the Texas voter ID case. The motion, which is opposed by the private plaintiffs in the case, but supported by the state of Texas, asks for the extension for the following reason, quote, Because of the change in administration, the Department of Justice also experienced a transition in leadership. The United States requires additional time to brief the new leadership of the department on this case and the issues to be addressed at that hearing before making any representations to the court. Hassan added, I expect that in both the North Carolina and Texas voting cases pending in the Supreme Court, that the U.S. Department of Justice will switch sides and align with the states that pass these restrictive voting laws and against the voting rights plaintiffs. Later later that day, the court agreed to postpone the hearing for a month. So there's that. That happened on Friday when the Trump administration said they weren't doing anything other than, you know, getting sworn in and and celebrating. Well, they were taking action in this case, just not making noise about it. Moreover now, on Monday this week, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a petition by the state of Texas to hear its appeal of that long-running case dating back to 2011, restricting voting to only those who can present a very limited number of state-issued photo IDs. The law had been rejected several times by the Department of Justice before the Supreme Court gutted a, the key provision of the Voting Rights Act requiring preclearance or, or pre-approval of election laws in jurisdictions like Texas that have a long history of racial discrimination at the polls. But after the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013, Texas enacted that same law again, despite it already having been found to be racially discriminatory. And of course, it was uh, found to have been, again, a blatant violation of the Voting Rights Act and the U.S. Constitution after they enacted it. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, regarded as the most conservative in the land, upheld the lower court's ruling, but had questions about whether the law passed by state Republicans was only racially discriminating in its effect or whether lawmakers had the intent of passing a racially discriminatory law. That could make a very big difference for the state of Texas, whether it's effect or intent. We'll talk about that in a second. And all of that, of course, all of that preceded Donald Trump's lie to congressional leaders at the White House on Monday, repeated again today by White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, that he believes uh, he only lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by uh, 2.8 million votes because there were anywhere from Three to five million illegal votes cast for which there is zero evidence, none, quite the opposite. In fact, here to explain and I wish her luck what all of these uh, these things mean and where all of these cases may go from here with a new alt fact administration now in charge of the Department of Justice is Julie Ebenstein. She is the uh, she is a staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project, focusing on challenging the proliferation of voter suppression laws throughout the country. I think she's going to be very busy for a while. Julie Ebenstein, welcome back to the broadcast.
3: Hi, Brad. Thanks very much. And, and just to say, we're grateful for your year-round coverage of this important issue, so thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you, Julie. Uh, let's start with this, uh, with this case that the Trump administration's DOJ asked to delay on Friday. Uh, first, uh, what was that now-delayed hearing in Texas meant to focus on? Uh, and then we'll get into uh, what the potential switch in position for the DOJ may mean.
3: Sure. well, well, you went through some of the details of the posture of this case, and it's a bit complicated. Um, like you said, the district court, the trial court, mm-hmm. found that the law was intentionally discriminatory and had a discriminatory effect. The case went up to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit agreed with the trial court that the law violated the Voting Rights Act in the effect that it had mm-hmm. um, on on voters, but wanted the trial court to go back and reway. Whether there was a discriminatory intent behind the law, um, so the so the case went back to the trial court, and that's how it was going to proceed. Um, today, actually, mm-hmm. had the Department of Justice not asked for a month-long extension. The, the court was set to consider again whether there was evidence of racially discriminatory intent and to consider what the appropriate remedy is for the Voting Rights Act violation that the law had a discriminatory effect.
1: And, and what um, is the difference between the intent and effect? Why is that important to the Voting Rights Act?
3: It's significant for a number of reasons. Um, either finding Would uh, would mean that the law is is in violation of either federal law or the Constitution and can't be implemented. So either finding means that this uh, voter ID law can't stand. Mm -hmm. But there's a a few there's different standards for um, the two different violations, and there can be a different effect. The Voting Rights Act um, prohibition on discriminatory effects. Uh, means that you can pass a law that has the effect of imposing additional burdens on African American voters, um, or having a, a heavier effect mm-hmm. on African American voters than you do on white voters or other racial minorities. Um, with an intent claim, it means that the the law was passed uh, with a motivation to discriminate on the basis of race. Now, one uh, one aspect of an intent finding, if the court were to find that this is a constitutional violation, is the potential for bail-in. So like you said, in 2013, the Supreme Court in Shelby County decided that section five of the Voting Rights Act could no longer be enforced. And there there is um, a bit of a hook where if there's a, a constitutional violation found, a jurisdiction can be bailed back into coverage under the Voting Rights Act.
1: So they threw out, the Supreme Court threw out essentially the list uh, of jurisdictions. They said that the 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 method, the formula for coming up with these jurisdictions who are subject to preclearance, that that's, uh, that was done too long ago, There, even though there is a way for those jurisdictions to be bailed out. Uh, They did away with the list. They said Congress has to come up with a new one. And then Congress so far has taken no action on that. But that provision to bail someone in, to bail a jurisdiction in, that's still in place. And if Texas is found to have intentionally discriminated, then the, the question comes up, should they be bailed back in and required to get approval from the federal government for all future election laws?
3: Well, I think it's important to say that uh, bail-in, while while it's one option, so mm-hmm. it, it it remains part of the Voting Rights Act, it's really not sufficient because, like you said, first you need a constitutional violation and successful litigation to identify what jurisdiction could be bailed in, and on top of that, it would have to proceed jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So the the uh, whole. Mm -hmm. in civil rights protection that was left by Shelby County really must be corrected uh, by Congress passing an amendment to the Voting Rights Act so that this coverage formula uh, covers the entire, more expansively than it did before, not only more narrowly and only uh, jurisdictions that have already violated people's rights. Um, So while it's still, while bail-in is still a potential remaining option, it's it's really not as protective as the law used to be and not sufficient for the type of voter suppression and discrimination that we've seen um, all over the
1: country. Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly isn't, but I see no uh, real clear path at this time for this Republican Congress, this Republican president, to actually do anything uh, to restore that section of the Voting Rights Act. So bail-in at this point may be all we have for a while. But let me ask you about the... The technical aspects of this case, uh, and what uh, Rick Hassan noted, that he suspects the Department of Justice is now going to flip sides. They had been challenging these laws in places like Texas and North Carolina, and now they may actually uh, take the side of the states in these cases. Uh, if the DOJ does flip sides in the uh, in the in the Texas case, for the moment what happens then? Do the private plaintiffs, I know there are other plaintiffs, I think ACLU may even be one of them, do they continue on with the case now, but against the DOJ at that point? So
3: um, there are private plaintiffs in both the Texas uh, litigation and the North Carolina litigation. And no matter what happens, those plaintiffs will move forward uh, challenging these discriminatory laws. Um as far as what position DOJ will take, and just, just mm-hmm. to uh, be clear, the ACLU is a plaintiff in North Carolina. We filed an amicus brief in Texas, but we're not a plaintiff in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as what position DOJ will take, that's obviously hard to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, we were all concerned when, uh, uh, when they sought a additional time hours after the inauguration um as should be obvious the facts of the case certainly didn't change so there's no external reason why uh the DOJ's position on enforcing the protections of the Voting Rights Act should change but there's certainly concern that um that DOJ will shift and and uh no longer take the same positions that it's taken in the Texas North Carolina case and and a lot of concern for future uh, cases or future protection of people's voting rights. Whether DOJ will will um, continue to enforce the Voting Rights Act and protect its citizens.
1: Well, you you've been uh, I know you worked on a bunch of cases down in Florida uh, with the ACLU uh, litigating those. What what does what what difference does it make in uh, wh- whether the DOJ is on your side or not in other words will these cases continue but they won't have the same type of resources the private plaintiffs like the ACLU NAACP and so forth don't have the the same type of resources what practical effect does it has have when DOJ is on your side one day and actually fighting <laughs> against you the next
3: well, I, it's not so much our side as as the side of uh, U.S. citizens everywhere and voters everywhere. Mm-hmm. DOJ is the body that's tasked with enforcing the Federal Voting Rights Act, um, addressing and responding to uh, violations when states or local jurisdictions violate people's voting rights. And um, we need DOJ. We need the federal government to continue on with its responsibilities under the Voting Rights Act. So... Uh How will it affect the ACLU and other organizations that that bring lawsuits as private plaintiffs will continue to do the work that we've always done um, Of course it was it was uh, helpful in cases like North Carolina where the Department of Justice was also a plaintiff in the case um, but there are certainly cases where private organizations like ACLU go forward uh, without any Department of Justice involvement. And on the flip side, there are many cases where the Department of Justice brings a lawsuit um, and private plaintiffs aren't involved. So it's diluting already. If the Department of Justice does not uh, provide an enforced the same robust protections the Voting Rights Act. It's diluting the already scarce resources that are out there mm. to challenge these laws.
1: Uh, on uh, Monday, as I mentioned in the intro, the Supreme Court declined to hear a challenge uh, to part of this Texas case. That was the challenge was brought by the state of Texas after the uh, most conservative uh, appellate court in the land uh, agreed that uh, this law was discriminatory. What does the uh, Supreme Court's decision to not hear this part of the challenge mean to this case, as far as you can tell, Julie Ebenstein?
3: Well, it means that that the remedy currently in place will go forward, so uh, the law will not go into effect. it's important, though, for people to understand what the Supreme Court denying cert in this case means, which is that it's unusual for the court to take a case that's in what's called an interlocutory posture. Um, Like you mentioned and Mm -hmm. and, uh, explained, this case was sent back to the trial court to make a finding on intent, and back to the trial court to make a finding on the proper remedy for the Voting Rights Act violation. It's not entirely final yet. And what the Supreme Court said is, while we can grant cert, it's not appropriate to grant it at this time when the case is not entirely final. The trial court is still there trying to... Uh, uh, redetermine what to do with the discriminatory intent claim. I,
1: I, I know it's it's good for the short term because the restrictions on that law stay in place. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any read, maybe it's just tea leaves or, or speaking with your, your colleagues, uh, does the uh, decision... It was announced by Chief Justice John Roberts on Monday to not hear that case. Can we tell? Does does it mean that he'd prefer to wait until there's an additional Trump justice on the court, or is he uh, just is it just about waiting for the district court to rehear uh, this uh, case on you know intent versus effect and so forth?
3: Well, I, I'd hate to guess based on tea leaves and hope, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, like I said, it's not unusual for the court to. Uh, to decide not to take a case when it's in this in between posture. Okay. So I don't think we necessarily want to read too much into the specifics of why the Supreme Court decided um, not to take it. Uh, Justice Roberts wrote a very short um, explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he denied cert and that just said it just noted the interlocutory appeal this in between position of the case so i don't think um i don't think we want to read into it anything beyond what the courts told us
1: thank you for encouraging me to not uh freak out about that uh good to know <laughs> uh we got just a, a few minutes uh here uh, julie the uh, city of Pasadena Texas Uh, was found recently, just the city itself, uh, was found to be in violation of the Voting Rights Act uh, after they had instituted a new scheme, I think, for city council elections, right after the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2013, and uh I think someone on the on the city council there may have even said something like we we can now do whatever we want uh, after the Shelby county case uh, had destroyed the heart of the Voting Rights Act, but now they they got busted for it, and we talked about that bail-in provision in the Voting Rights Act that allows them to be bailed back in to pre-clearance requirement. My understanding is, that's what uh, the city of Pasadena is, is now facing. They're one of the first uh, jurisdictions to be bailed in. Did I, uh, have I explained it so far uh, correctly?
3: Yes, you've, you've explained it well in Pasadena and and Texas and North Carolina similarly passed these suppressive laws immediately after the Shelby County decision mm-hmm. and like you said got busted by the courts uh, the trial court in Texas the appeals court in North Carolina and now the trial court in Pasadena who said that the discrimination um, was intentional so it's the, the timing that each of these laws was passed is significant. As far as Pasadena goes, what happened in that case is very soon after Shelby County, the town went from having a, uh, eight single-member districts, so eight different seats on the city council and one neighborhood mm-hmm. electing each seat, to a 6-2 plan, which means you have six seats representing different neighborhoods and two at-large seats on behalf of Latino voters, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund brought a lawsuit saying that this was a Voting Rights Act violation and intentionally discriminatory. And like you just said, the court found in its favor that the law did um, uh, Mm -hmm. intentionally discriminate against Latino voters and dilute the the weight of their rights. So So, uh, not only did they find...
1: well, no. So here's my question about this. So th- as I understand, the city of Pasadena, Texas, has therefore been bailed in. If they make new uh, election-related laws, they have to get you know pre-clearance by the uh, by the Department of Justice or by the uh, the District Court in in D.C. Um, but here's my question on this because I remember before the Supreme Court had gutted the Voting Rights Act, there were some states that were not entirely covered. By the Voting Rights Act I I think Florida may even have been one of them, and I know you did a lot of work in Florida but the so my question is back then because the state of Florida had certain counties or cities that were covered by section five of the Voting Rights Act, that meant that when the state of Florida fa- uh, passed a law a voting law, it would affect those counties and therefore it had to be approved it had to face pre-clearance. If I understand that correctly, and if I do, is that now the case potentially in the state of Texas because of the city of Pasadena? They've been bailed back in and therefore new state laws, new state voting laws passed by the state of Texas would have to get preclearance if only because they will affect the city of Pasadena. Am I right about that?
3: It, it's an interesting question like you said in florida there were five covered counties um, and so when a state law was passed that would affect all sixty seven of the counties uh... the state went to the department of justice or the dc courts for preclearance mm-hmm. it's a little it may be and you know it's difficult to interpret just from this one order uh... in pasadena how it'll go forward but the order specifically says that uh... when there's a change to voting practices with that that Puts into effect something different from the map and plan mm-hmm. in Pasadena in use in May 2013 election. So it would have to. Uh, it, it's fairly narrow the bail-in in this case, uh, mm. uh, on my reading of I'm the sure. order, which means that it's it's not necessarily so that a law passed um, in Texas, any statewide law passed in Texas, would affect the the map or the voting plan in Pasadena. Um, some law could, but but I I wouldn't assume that the entire state is bailed in for all voting related laws just because Pasadena has to keep a consistent map and electoral plan for its city council. Yeah. Um, so so this may just be a bail-in limited to Pasadena, which again shows the difficulty of not having Section Five of the Voting Rights Act operative. There, It's impossible to bail every little jurisdiction, every locality in effectively. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it sure is. Uh, All right, well, uh, before I let you go, Julie, the last time you were on the show, as I recall uh, last year, we had a whole bunch of uh, encouraging voting rights rulings back then from the U.S. appeals courts and and others in the run-up to the 2016 election. We had that good news in North Carolina and Texas, Wisconsin, among others. The good news in Wisconsin was was tempered, however, uh, when the uh, appeals court found their photo ID restriction uh, though found unlawful by the lower courts, was ultimately allowed to uh, to to stay in place during the uh, November election. But now we've got a different world. So uh, <laughs> what do you expect to see at both the state and federal level uh, around the country and and does the ACLU have the resources that will be needed? To challenge all of these new restrictions that we are likely to see now in in dozens of states.
3: Well, we're we're still holding on to a successful lawsuit in North Carolina, a successful lawsuit in Texas, and this recent successful lawsuit in Pasadena. So, uh, rightfully, people are concerned about what the future will bring and are are going to remain vigilant. But um, these successful uh, court cases still stand. So that's at least that's encouraging. Um, you know the ACLU and other other organizations that work to protect voting rights. Like I said, they remain plaintiffs in these particular cases, no matter what the Department of Justice does. Um, we've we've all worked to protect voting rights uh, after the wave of suppressive laws was passed following Shelby County in 2013, and we're going to keep doing what we do, no matter no matter what we see coming.
1: Julie Ebenstein, uh, staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project. You can get more information on that, of course, at ACLU.org. Please do support their efforts over there. We're going to need the ACLU now more than ever. You can also find Julie on the Twitters and harass her as you like at Jules Public is her Twitter handle uh, Julie thank you so much I expect I'm going to be bothering you a whole lot for the next uh, few years I hope you don't mind in advance
3: Looking forward to it Fred thanks for having me on
1: Thank you Julie Alright we gotta get out I'm running late today as I suspect I will be for quite a while didn't even have time to get to the confirmation hearings or uh, any of Trump's nominees who have been uh, who have been confirmed over the last few days we will save that for our next thrilling episode of the broadcast. until then my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Julie Ebenstein of the ACLU, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, where we are now celebrating our 13th year of troublemaking and muckraking. Oh
2: my. So, and I did notice it was yeah. 12,000 posts. Uh,
1: yeah, so that's You have what, written
2: 12,000 uh, posts uh, at Bradblog. a blog. thousand
1: a year, is that what it comes <laughs>
2: That's
1: about to, it. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. So uh, thanks to those of you who are helping us uh, celebrate our anniversary by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. If you'd like to drop me any email, I'd love to see from you. My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. All right. That's it. If we're lucky, we'll open up the phones a little bit tomorrow and cover... whatever happens between now and then. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.